everyone, and welcome to The Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film, and this year's podcast media partner for the Dead Center 2022 Film Festival. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we are wrapping up our coverage of the film festival by looking back at the highlights, including some of our favorite films and experiences. So today I'll be sitting down with the extremely talented team that I had the privilege of working with here at the Cinematropolis, it's a team of three writers, and we're going to talk a little bit about the return uh, to the in-person festival experience before swapping notes and talking about some of the films we saw. This is going to be more of a roundtable, less of an interview. So for those of you who have been tuning in to just our Dead Center coverage, uh, this is going to be a little more like a, my normal show where we're just talking about movies and uh, what we think about them. So joining me today, first up, we have Joe Light, who is uh, contributing to the Cinematropolis for Dead Center and also the managing editor at No Film School. Joe, welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. Hi, happy to be here. All right. And next up, we have, uh, of course, friend and uh, longtime The Cinematropolis contributor, Daniel Bocamper. Daniel, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. And last but certainly not least, I'm super excited to welcome, uh, you know, a, a regular of our Dead Center coverage from years past, Christopher Schultz. Chris, welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I should note, this is, uh, gosh, I think we skipped a year last year, but I want to say with this specific group, is this the third year? I think the three of us have worked together, maybe. That sounds right. It sounds yeah. right. We did. We had. I think we did. We had me and Chris and Daniel worked with another gentleman named Kevin Tudor the year for one year. So, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. And then the year before that, I was solo. So, yeah, third year. Guys, you keep coming back. Thank you. You guys are awesome. I got nothing better to do. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So listeners, as you can tell, these are some tremendously insightful and uh, awesome writers that I have who are really pitching at Dead Center every year. You can find all of uh, their Dead Center coverage at thecinematropolis.com, and you're going to hear us talk about what we saw here in a moment. Uh, but before we do get into today's conversation, I just wanted to quickly note that if you're listening to the show and you enjoy our conversation, you can support us by subscribing to the show via your preferred podcast app, and leaving us a rating and a review. This is going to be most important, especially on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And subscribing, this is going to be a great way not only to catch up on the 10 or so festival podcast that we just finished, but we've got so many review discussions coming up. Just, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I've got, we've got Jurassic World uh, Dominion. Not sure about the movie, but uh, we got a, a conversation coming. Uh, we got Bullet Train. Gosh, we got an Avatar sequel coming out later this year. So if you want to hear our thoughts uh, here at the Cinematropolis on all the new movies, you can uh, subscribe and have them sent straight to your uh, listening device there. Now, without further ado, let's jump into our conversation about uh, the Dead Center 2022 Film Festival. Daniel. My man, you, sir, are the only one in this crew who is actually able to attend in person. No pressure here. None taken. For COVID reasons, I was unable to attend. I won't get into the details, but essentially, listeners, I had tested positive right after the Memorial Day weekend, despite being, uh, you know, double boosted with the Pfizer vaccines. And even though I felt great by the time the festival came around, I didn't want to accidentally be the source of uh, other people getting COVID. So, uh, alas, all the coverage you've heard has been done remotely or was done before um, I had tested positive, uh, cause I did have a few folks in my studio before then. And then, uh, Chris was st stayed home for this one and Jay, J uh, Joe stayed home for this one. Again, a huge shout out to dead center for providing the screener links for us to, uh, watch and review these movies. But that leaves us with Mr. Bo Kemper, who was our eyes and ears on the ground. So, uh, Daniel, thanks for taking one for the team here. Yeah, of course. It doesn't feel like taking, uh, necessarily anything, but I, uh, it was more personal preference just, uh, wanting to be there, kind of recapture 
um, that film festival experience to some extent. And uh, luckily it, it was still there. It was, it was different. And even um, I've been to, to quite a few films um, in person as of late, just in, just in general, but, but a lot of the theaters I tend to gravitate towards, they're still pretty good about, you know, creating some form of distance. Um, and, and, and even now people, at least in my experience, aren't, you know, I haven't been to like a packed opening night thing. I, well, maybe like the Batman was, was close to that, but um, for the most part, it hasn't been um, super packed, but, but regardless, um, it was, it was really refreshing in a lot of ways. I, uh, I don't think the weight of a film is always defined by how you view it. As long as you have decent picture, you know, so you can actually see the film and then decent sound. So you can at least hear what's going on. But I do think when you have a chance to see a film, especially smaller, maybe more independent, uh, films like the ones you'll, you'll find at dead center that you, you may, you'll likely not see anywhere else. Um, at least for, you know, at times years, even if ever at all, um, it helps like build that, that kind of sense of reverence and importance, um, to see them in person, at least for me. Um, and so when I, when I do have that opportunity, I like to take it. Um, and it was, it was nice, um, just to experience that again. Yeah, no, I think that, I think you're spot on. I mean, you know, we've all, especially with the pandemic, we've all gotten more accustomed than before than to watching stuff at home. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, nothing, at least in my mind, this is just me, my take here. uh, Nothing really replaces that big screen uh, experience. It's, it's really hard. I, for one, uh, get way more distracted when I'm watching things at home, um, versus, uh, in, in a theater. And, uh, you know, there's also the communal experience as well, which is getting together with fellow film lovers to watch a movie that you're really excited about together, Uh, even if it's mostly strangers, you know, people who are really passionate about the thing you're watching, you can feel that energy in the room. So, Daniel, I mean, like, would you say um, at the in-person events that you attended this year, uh, what, what would you say the energy was like in those screenings? Uh, excited, ready to be there <laughs> again. There, um, um, and I've I've kind of experienced that that bit of a, as we slowly have um, start to enjoy more films in person um, as a group. It, it, you know, I, I've I've felt it there, um, and I, and I feel it here as well. I think there's just a yeah, just a just an overall sense of of excitement. Um, and just ready to have that spirits again. I, I, I will be frank. Um, I've been to more, and I think with good reason, given the current circumstances, I've definitely been to more packed dead center screenings before. Um, but that's not to say, I, I don't think it, it's easy to rate a film festival just by like, I think how many people attend each individual screening. And I think sometimes people misplace attendance for, you know, the quality of a film or maybe even how important it might be. And I would say for the people that were attending there, you know, there was plenty of questions asked. I, I didn't always get to enjoy like a Q and a with, with every screening I went to, but when they're um, they were there, such as for mama bears, um, people were, 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 were very involved um, and just very excited um, to be there and ask questions. And so maybe this is more of a, like, <laughs> you know, I've had some time away and haven't gotten to experience that, setting again and so i'm just you know kind of over the moon to be there i do think that there there is something different i do definitely think it's that you know the the fest film festival experience in oklahoma city was missed and it's nice to be able to slowly and gradually uh reintroduce that awesome and i mean we're going to talk more specifically about the the movies in and out here in a moment what screenings did you uh, attend i mean uh, in types of variety and how about how many of those had q and a's would you say 
Right. So two of them for certain had Q&As. I attended five screenings in person total. Um, I didn't go to any public screenings, uh, did not make it out to uh, to Magic Mike, uh, but I, I will rewatch it and its sequel uh, in solidarity sometime soon. But 10 years of Magic Mike. No, 10 years. I'll need to catch the... Where's my legacy sequel? I, I need it right now. Honestly, yeah, I'm still baffled that Magic Mike came out 10 years ago. Um, that, that I, I'm having, like, I can't compute it. I, uh, didn't go to any of the public screenings, but I did make it out to Eternal Spring, the Braves, um, Octopus, and then those that actually had, um, screenings behind them, it was Mama Bears and the, uh, Teardricker shorts. I do want to give a shout out to two of the feature programmers. I believe it was, uh, Kevin Ely and Sunrise Tipicone for just really solid, concise introductions to the films that, that really set the tone. So even for the films that didn't benefit from a Q&A or a, um, a panel of any kind, it was, it was still nice to have them introduce it. Again, tremendous shout out to all of the the programmers who really put in the work at this year's festival. Kevin Ely, Sunrise Tipicone, Camilla Chavez Rojas, uh, we've got Laron Chapman for Pride, Paris Burris for Shorts. I mean, just awesome, awesome team putting in the work this year. Daniel, is there anything, any other highlights about the, the in-person experience that you want to share with us today? Beyond that, just a solid festival. Again, I, I'm always excited to see where Dead Center will go. Um, from here and uh, going to challenge myself to actually go to more um, panels moving forward, maybe next year, um, try and actually go to more panels rather than just screenings themselves. Awesome. I mean, yeah, we should note that they have a, a lot of panels that are put on by the Oklahoma Film Music Office, um, just talking about the ins and outs of filmmaking here in Oklahoma. Uh, again, I don't know. I'm one of those guys. I'm a sucker for panels. Like when you go to cons and stuff and people are all like standing up, lining up for autographs, which is cool. But I'm always like, yeah, but I just want to hear people talk about cool stuff they made. And, um, oh, yeah. Uh, so I'm a big sucker for that. So I, I, I did miss out on uh, attending those this year. Let's get really to the core of Dead Center here. Let's talk about the movies. And guys, we saw so many movies uh, among this team here. I think we have at least 14 movies that are being reviewed. And then I think I had around eight filmmakers that I interviewed as part of the festival. Uh, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg. I believe there was over 140 films, uh, either uh, feature films or short films that play at this year's festival. But I'm actually going to start just with the Oklahoma feature films. And Chris, I actually want to turn you, turn to you for this one. Uh, of course, as I noted a moment ago, due to circumstances, both you and I, we had to do Dead Center from Home. But you covered uh, several movies for us, including the three Oklahoma feature films this year and actually wrote a really uh, insightful essay, I would say, kind of analyzing, you know, what are these three films coming out together? What are they saying about sort of the state of Oklahoma in 2022? I'd love to for you to tell us a little bit more about each of these films. And we'll start with Chicken House. So what exactly can you tell us about Chicken House and what did you think of the film? So Chicken House is uh, the second uh, feature film uh, from Kate Jones. Um, she previously did She's the Eldest, uh, which I think was two years ago. It premiered at Dead Center. Um, and uh, it's basically just kind of an examination of um, tr trying to make it as an actor here in Oklahoma, as well as in Los Angeles. And it centers around uh, four women who live in a house together. One of the roommates moves to Los Angeles to try to make it out there and is replaced by this uh, sort of, I, I don't know, sketchy, uh, questionable type person, I guess. And they're not really sure about her past, where she's come from. Uh, this is a character named uh, Kat, played by Kate Jones uh, as well. 
Um, it's got a really great cra- cast overall. It's really just kind of an offbeat um, comedy. Um, I, I, I note in my essay, but um, the, the character Cat uh, name checks David Lynch and Phoebe Waller-Bridge is, um, at some point uh, at, near the end of the film. And I think that's a pretty good sort of uh, combination of like, like, if someone were to ask, you know, what what filmmakers do you think like most influenced this? I, I would probably say those two. Um, it's got the humor that, uh, that Waller Bridges is known for, but just kind of that, that Lynch weirdness as well. Um, so overall a really, really solid, enjoyable film. I, I liked quite a bit about it. Um, I won't go into too much detail, I guess, just because it's, it's, it was kind of fun just going into it completely blind. I had you know no idea what it was going to be about, uh, beforehand. Um, no, that, that's really great. And I think um, I, I think with Kate's work, I'm always curious, especially when I saw the trailer. I think uh, the, like the, there's a short trailer floating around out there, and that's where you're like, oh, I'm intrigued. That's about all I want to know about the film, though, because it really is sort of an experience, I would say. I found that to be pretty funny myself. But Joe, I actually want to turn it to you here because you actually reviewed Chicken House for us. And one thing I noticed when I was uh, reading your review uh, was that you got to, uh, in quote, got to see it move from the page to the screen. So I'd love to hear a little bit more. Can you tell me more, a little bit more about your relationship uh, with the film? Yeah, I uh, actually am in a writing group with Kate. Um, she is awesome. And this was one of the scripts that she brought to the group. So I got to see some very early drafts of it. And I don't know if anyone has here has ever read any of her scripts, but she writes very specifically in the way that she wants it to look like you can tell very clearly it's not necessarily traditional writing because she just jumps around so much like if you see just like the first five minutes of the film you know that she's jumping between worlds times characters styles and so it's really interesting to see her do that initially and then know exactly what the vision is and be able to translate it so well into the finished product so that's what I was talking about there, just seeing, especially knowing that they shot this so fast and for so little money, um, the fact that she was able to translate it that well is just really, really impressive to me. Yeah, I mean, again, overall, it's um, when you mentioned the budget, this is a micro budgeted film. And not only that, I, I would say um, I had the, the privilege of interviewing uh, Kate and Cassie on the podcast, uh, you know, related to the film and they were talking about their experiences and some of the challenges they faced, but it really sounds like not only did uh, Kate have very specific ideas from the scene to scene, but she did a lot of like on set directing for her actors, which was, uh, I mean, really impressive because she was doing like eight jobs at once. Probably she was she wrote the script. Yeah. She was the director. She was co-producing it uh, like, you know, it, it, she was wearing a lot of hats all at once. And for her to get these types of performances out of her cast, all while making them feel really good, like Cassie. Uh, just spoke very highly of her experience and and uh, even um, getting a word in from Mickey Reese off mic, you know, hearing about his experience there. I mean, it just sounds like it was a really great film to work on, despite the fact having a very low budget. Seems like she did a tremendous job, not only making a great movie, but making a great experience for a cast. So what would happen if we gave her some budget? I don't know. Uh, Hello, I don't know. Hello. Well, hey, thanks for sharing a little bit more about your experience, you know, with the script. Is there anything else you'd like to add about Chicken House before we move on? Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's just it didn't really honestly change that much. I could tell that they were probably experimenting a little on set. There are some 
different things, but overall it, it, she knew what she wanted. She developed that script over a long enough period that she was able to get that done exactly the way that she wanted to again, even though it was quickly and very cheaply done and it's just very commendable. So I respect her so much for that work. So that is uh, our first Oklahoma feature that we're talking about. That's Kate Jones's Chicken House. Uh, next up is the winner of the uh, best Oklahoma feature, Out of Exile. Uh, Chris, what can you tell us about Out of Exile? So Out of Exile is um, kind of a, a, a very bleak, I would say, a, a dramatic thriller, um, a thriller slash uh, familial drama, um, which basically starts off with a uh, armed car robbery. Uh, and uh, it's it's an armed car, bar, car robbery that goes south very quickly. And um, it's just kind of dealing with the repercussions of, of this, this crime um, and kind of exploring how these criminals are trying to find a better life, um, but um, kind of just continually getting sucked back into uh, this sort of violent life that they live. It's a pretty well-made film. I think overall it, it um, plot-wise, I think, you know, you're not necessarily going to see something groundbreaking per se when it comes to the story, but it is, it is compelling. It's very well acted. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's told very well and, and shot very well too. Uh, uh Charles Elmore, uh, a local cinematographer, uh, was responsible for, for shooting this and, and did a really fantastic job. Yeah, the production values on this one looked really slick. Um, I, I was most impressed with how they integrated the drone footage pretty seamlessly. Um, it really kind of captured this kind of dark and gritty Oklahoma. So even though the film is not officially set in Oklahoma, I think they kind of leave it a little nebulous in terms of like where it's set at. Um, but uh, but you get little, you know, we are from here, so we know kind of what it looks like. They were able to get some really interesting shots where you're like, oh, wow. It, uh, it feels gross to live here all of a sudden, not, <laughs> not, but, you know, it has that kind of gritty crime drama yeah. to it. Um, there happened. were definitely times where it felt like it was sort of shot in L.A., some of these different locations that they found. It, and just the cinematography, again, just kind of utilizing that to make it look, have that kind of look of like maybe a larger, more sprawling uh, city than, than Oklahoma City, in fact, is. And at least, a, you know, in comparison to L.A., for instance, um, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, they did. They did a good job of sort of hiding the football as, as to, in terms of where this was actually set. Right. Well, we know that Ryan Merriman's from Dallas. I think he's at least working for the Dallas arm of the FBI. I think. Yeah. Yeah. They they show they showed the exterior of the FBI, and it is like the Dallas, Texas, like FBI location. So. At least he's from there, but you know, he has a he has a line at some point about like you know get these dirty criminals out of my city or something like that. So it's it's like, uh, well, is it Dallas? Is it <laughs> is it okay? Oklahoma City. Yeah. Uh, again, left a little uh, up to the imagination. Um, but uh, no, I had a so this is a, a the I think the I don't want to say not directorial debut, but I think maybe narrative debut for director Kyle Kawika Harris, tremendous filmmaker. Seems like there's a lot of uh, promise there. He previously had won a uh, regional Emmy for the documentary about the, the pipeline. I believe. So uh, again, a lot of promise there. And like you said, uh, tremendous performances. You've got um, Adam Hampton up there. Who's, who's always kind of like one of Oklahoma's uh, like sort of local gems in terms of acting, but, uh, and Ryan Merriman, of course, uh, 
previous Dead Center icon. So tremendous cast there. We had a great conversation with uh, the director and several members of the cast uh, that you can uh, listeners can find over at the cinematropolis.com. But yeah, I I don't want to reiterate on too many other things you said, Chris. Uh, So I just want to ask, oh, oh, this is best, as as I said a minute ago, best Oklahoma feature film uh, as selected by the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle, which both Chris and I are members of. So uh, again, congratulations to the Out of Exile team. Uh, Chris, anything else you want to add about this film? Um, No, I think that pretty well covers it. Um, Yeah, pretty, pretty solid debut uh, feature. I think there's there's a lot to look forward to. Awesome. Well, uh, let's take us uh, take us to the last Oklahoma feature here. So it's Ten Killer. So can you tell us about Ten Killer and what maybe made it uh, a more interesting addition this year? Uh, Ten Killer is really I I always kind of hate to use the term slice of life, but in a lot of ways, that's what this film is. It's very kind of uh, it, it doesn't have much of a plot really it's it, there's not really much of a story going on it's just kind of drifting through these lives um of, the, of these people it was shot in and around the Tahlequah area um and um so there's there's a lot of attention to sort of like the poverty uh, in the area um I, I, again looking at sort of like the violence that, that's going on in the area the crime um and how a, a lot of people in this area uh will tend to kind of turn to crime um, to sort of make ends meet. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I, I felt like the kind of, um, the sort of drifting nature of the, of the storytelling, uh, was, was suitable to the subject matter. We see a lot of, you know, in, in between just sort of the major things happening, the, the sort of main plot of it is, uh, this 18 year old kid who works at a, uh, a machine parts factory, uh, just kind of runs afoul of his mom's boyfriend who, who is also a coworker at the, machine factory and so he's kind of hiding out from him for a little bit because he knows the guy's coming like out to get him coming after him uh there's a there's another subplot about the mother wanting to take his little brother away and move away with this this man um and so that's kind of where the the most of the drama kind of centers around but for the most part there's just kind of you know they're they're hanging out at the uh convenience store they're going to the lake you know it's just kind of what what these people get up to um on a day-to-day basis. Um, and so I thought it was interesting in that way that it really, it was, it was saying a lot without really just sort of like saying something, you know what I mean? It, it wasn't sort of, uh, there wasn't just like a big message, um, you know, in red letters on the screen. Um, it just kind of it took its time telling its story in its own way. So, yeah, no, a little bit of a uh, slice of life though. I mean, I think it just, it, so it sounds like it was really just trying to to tell you a little bit more about the way people are living, right? At least that was my take. It's not, not really trying to communicate some profound message per se, as much as it's like, here's what people who live here live like and what the day to day and the, the dramas they face. Right. Right. My exactly. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Chris, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it, but as I mentioned earlier, you wrote a really awesome analysis of the three different Oklahoma feature films. Anything you want to say about that to our listeners before we move on? Uh, just in brief, um, I think there's a lot of connective tissue between these these films that um, you might not immediately think about because um, they are they are three very different films. Um, you know, uh, Chicken House is primarily utilizing comedy. Um, Ten Killers a little more sort of a, a serial comic uh, drama, and then uh, Out of Exile is, is full on drama. Um, but uh, despite that, they are really kind of saying a lot about not only what it's like living in Oklahoma, but, um, you know, the rest of the United States and perhaps globally as well. So, um, yeah, it, 
read the essay and find out more. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And uh, listeners, of course, uh, everything that we covered that is going to be linked in the, the show notes today. So essays, podcast interviews, all of our collective work linked in the show notes for today's episode. So if you want to read that, check out the show notes. You can find a link to Chris's essay on the three uh, Oklahoma feature films. Now, Chris, you also caught uh, one of the more competitive shorts uh, blocks of short films, the Okie Shorts Volume 1 and 2. It's so competitive, they had to actually create more slots so they could break it into two blocks, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Um, what was your take on this year's lineup of short films? It was a really great lineup. Um, the The level of just diverse uh, voices coming into this was was really impressive, um, and and again same same with the features, but um, times a thousand uh, the the variety of of different you know film languages, different approaches to storytelling, be it comedy, uh, horror, um, documentary, um, you know straight up drama. Uh, there, there, there was just a lot, there was a lot to really kind of sink your teeth into. Um, so I, I think I, you know, I've watched, uh, Oklahoma shorts in the past. I feel like this is maybe the richest, uh, you know, uh, lineup of films that we've had, uh, so far. Um, so yeah, really, really, really solid, uh, all around. Uh, I didn't really see anything that was just absolutely terrible. <laughs> so. yeah. It's a competitive, it's a competitive block for sure. I, I know, I mean, the number of films that the programmers review every year is significantly more than the 20 that got in. Um, I'll, I'll put it that way. So they really are picking from the cream of the crop. And I think in terms of like looking at up and coming talent or what talent is available here in Oklahoma, I really do feel like the shorts block is the best place to look because uh, at that, you know, you, you have a more controlled budget at that point. Filmmakers feeling a little more uh, experimental and willing to take risks because it's a smaller project. Um, and I always just feel like they, the shorts deliver uh, big time. Um, now, uh, did, was there two or three of those shorts at all you wanted to call out? Uh, yeah. And, uh, I'll, I'll say two very quickly, um, because the ones that I, that I wanted to mention specifically, um, aren't, uh, don't all fit into this bucket, but, um, so many young filmmakers, um, like maybe high school level or just out of high school were contributing this year, uh, which is really awesome to see. So one in particular made by a younger filmmaker was called the first 280 honest words of my life. Um, this was just a very strange, um, but but charming uh, short uh, uh, featuring a girl that's just kind of telling her story and, and she's kind of bouncing back and forth between thoughts. It's, it's kind of free form um, almost stream of consciousness at times. Um, but it's shot in this very kind of lo-fi um, eight, eight millimeter style. I, I think maybe they were using like an eight millimeter app or something like that, but it, you know, it looked really cool. Um, and, and yeah, it's just, it's, it was, it was a, an odd film and I just really enjoyed, uh, everything about it. Um, it, it again, it's sort of hard to explain what it's about. It's, I, I think what I said is about the gist of it. She's just kind of telling a story and, and telling some of her thoughts to us. And it's intercut with different shots of her sort of acting these things out with other people, um, or sometimes representing them in some, in, in some more physical way. That's not maybe, uh, direct, the title one more time. Yeah, sure. It's called the first 280 honest words of my life. Listeners check it out. Uh, look it up. Uh, I'll make sure to link to at least the IMD page in the show notes. Um, Chris, what so you said there's another one that stood out to you. Uh, yeah, there were a few documentaries um, from Native Voices uh, to one that I uh, particularly loved was called What They've Been Taught. 
um, which was just, again, it kind of just had a, a narration uh, with shots of different locations around Oklahoma, as well as I believe North Carolina. Um, it was made um, by a Cherokee filmmaker. And um, again, again, it's just kind of talking about um, these, these different ways of doing, um, you know, of living one's life and how um, that, that knowledge is being passed on to different generations um, it, it kind of focuses on a mask maker. And so you kind of go you, you, visually, you see the process of him constructing this mask from um, a, a, a tree that he has chopped down. Uh, they go into like giving thanks to the, the tree as, um, you know, for its sacrifice to making something. Um, and that was kind of the general idea is that um, you are not creating something you're making something from something else. Um, so kind of taking away this idea of, you know, soul creation and looking at the, all the myriad, you know, things and, and even people that go into creating something. Um, just very beautiful short film. I, I think it was maybe about 11 minutes long. Um, and I really enjoyed that one quite a bit. And again, that one is called What They've Been Taught. Awesome. Well, thanks for shouting those out. And uh, of course, I also want to call out the winner of the best Okie short this year uh, as selected by the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle was Old House, New Home, uh, which I, is a story documenting um, sort of, I think, the, the remodeling of the outsider's home, uh, if I if I understand correctly. I uh, haven't seen it myself. Heard great things, though. Um, so check that one out as well. Let's move on to documentaries here. Daniel, you are our documentary guy. Not only were you the feet on the ground, our eyes and ears, but you also covered largely documentaries, not exclusively, including uh, the opening night film and the winner of Best Pride Film, Mama Bears. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about Mama Bears? Yeah, absolutely. It is a very powerful documentary from Darisha Kai. Um, Quick shout out to uh, Caleb's interview on the Cinematic Schematic. Uh, with Darisha. Um, Listen for more insight about the film. But again, uh, the film itself follows three Christian women, um, two who are um, white conservative mothers um, who are reconciling their faith with really just being there, being supportive of of their uh, gay and trans children. Uh, Whereas Tammy, um, the film's third subject, is... She is a uh, black lesbian who is a very firm Christian, but also trying to, you know, be who she actually is and goes to great lengths um, to sort of deny herself her identity. And the film follows her relationship um, with her mother and her relationship with her faith as she slowly begins to accept who she is. Um, you know, it's heartrending or heart-wrenching, excuse me, but also it, it reminds us of how painful and backwards sometimes our society, mostly our legislature, for being real, um, can be. So a lot of the film focuses on the, um, excuse me, uh, Kimberly. Um, the film has two um, features, two other women, uh, Sarah Cunningham, uh, who's from Oklahoma, uh, and her son, uh, Parker who came out, you know, I, I believe when he was either in junior high or high school and um, the, the years of tension that um, between him and his mother, before she finally decided that, you know, I can be both a Christian and 
support my son and be open about it, which led her um, to find a movement here, uh, Free Mom Hugs, which we'll uh, we'll go into a bit more detail in a second. But um, it also involves um, Kimberly Shafley and her daughter, Kai, who um, was assigned male at birth, but came out as trans at two and a half years old. Um, and I think that's very, very, very important. Um, and just a reminder um, that, you know, you don't you don't choose to be trans, of course. Um, it's it's never an option for anyone. It's natural. It's just life. And yet we do have legislators who are very convinced that uh, trans people are just, you know, men or women who want to go into uh, a different bathroom for some reason and assault people point out it's in it's in tech the, the it is in texas yeah and the the bill um just to give a little more context the bill i'm referring to was probably like i want to say it was like 2018 2019 but I, it's still you know you still hear about them today i know indiana had its own form of one but it was a uh, um dan patrick who was really spearheading <laughs> this really dumb push but it, it was gaining a lot of traction because it was built on fear and ultimately the the victim of this um wasn't just adults who are trans but also um a child one of the, the the stories of kai um you know this little girl who was just trying to go to the bathroom and was forced to to ultimately um you know have an accident in the middle of a hallway because the principals couldn't figure out well she can't go into the boys' bat or she can't go into the girls' bathroom because that's against the law. But she can't go into the boys' um, bathroom because she's clearly a girl. So we're going to let her use the nurses' bathroom. But oh wait, there's only one nurses' bathroom in this elementary school, and the nurse is in there. So I guess you're going to have to just humiliate yourself. Um, and it really captures that trauma. And and I think one of the most sobering reminders um, of this film is even if you are an ally, which I which I'd hope many of us are. Um, if not living through it to some extent ourselves, we still don't, it's hard to sometimes internalize just how hard it is to live with who you are sometimes. Um, and, and I think the film really captures that in a very moving and a very touching way, but it's not all pessimistic, even though it's real, you know, there's, there's definitely um, Kimberly and Kai relocated to Austin. Um, one of the most expensive places to live in America, just to, be somewhere um, in their state that accepts them um, for who they are. One of the most powerful things and, and one of the, the the recurring images is at the start of the film, you see a kind of a montage of both Sarah and Kimberly, but I think it's mostly Kimberly, all of her family photos. And you see a lot of shots of family reunions in virtually every face, except for hers and Kai's um, and some of the other children, it's blurred out um, because they could not get permission from any of uh, Kimberly's family to be featured in this film for Tammy. Um, her mom is featured throughout the first half of the film in interviews about, you know, not really approving of her daughter's lifestyle, but loving her anyway. And then she leaves the documentary halfway through it um, because it was hard for her to cope between the pressures of her family and her church just for supporting her daughter. And even so, even so, all of these bad things happen. Though the, the what what I think is is the, the 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 triumph that this film also conveys is that they still hold hope. They don't hate anybody. They don't resent their family. There's just this hope that inevitably people learn, and it's important to remember that. But at the same time, it's also important to check our privilege 
Um, and even when we are supportive, know that that we, we still need to meditate on how we, we, we don't have to endure it quite as these people do. Um, and, and I don't know, it's, it's just very, very well made, um, asking questions at every corner, um, and just incredibly thoughtful. And you see some very, very, very organic interviews and every 10 minutes, it'll have you on the verge of tears. So, um, very moving stuff. One thing I want to highlight, though, is the the movie, despite wrestling with some really intense and, and upsetting and disappointing um, stories, just based on you know the world we live in, it is optim- ultimately very optimistic. As you said, there's the, the yes. people all hold out hope. Uh, they talk about free mom hugs. Uh, free mom hugs, you know, start is really a grassroots movement. I didn't even realize this until I was in the interview with Darisha. Like they have chapters in all fifty states. There's over twenty thousand members via the main Facebook group. Yeah. Just, just a point of, and I'm so sorry. Just a point of clarification. I believe it's Mama Bears, the organization. Free Mom Hugs is kind of a, it's like a, a subsidiary is probably not the right word, but it's a, a. Sarah Cunningham did not find Mama Bears. Sarah Cunningham was the founder of Free Mom Hugs. Yes. Um, and they have chapters in all fifty states. Um, and there's over twenty thousand members uh, via Facebook group. Um, mm-hmm. then I learned it in the interview. Um, so anyway, just uh, there's a lot of growth it seems and the other thing that's uh i i kind of took away from the interview which listeners can check out darisha was just talking about how you know even um lgbtq plus families when someone comes out they have to have you know though it might not seem unfair there has to be a certain amount of empathy to give the families time to accept because um you know she basically was like you know hey it took me 50 five, 10, 15, 20 years to accept who I am. Why should I expect my parents to do it like overnight? And uh, that was something, it was a really interesting way to frame it and something I hadn't considered uh, because the movie at the end of the day, th- like you said, they don't hate anybody. Everything is framed in a more positive light. Even the the, the clear evils uh, that are oppressing these people are framed in a, from a place of misunderstanding. Um, yes. So uh, again, just tremendous film. I was very moved. Uh, and, and speaking of uh, Sarah Cunningham, uh, was she did, did she attend the the screening that you uh, were at, Daniel? Yeah, she did. She was there with her son uh, Parker, who's also featured heavily throughout the film. Um, she spoke a bit about the mission of Free Mom Hugs, um, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a movement. To you, often will find them at um, pride parades and pride festivals. And they're just people who say, you know, they might be wearing a shirt that says free mom hugs. And if you uh, need a hug, uh, they're there for you. Um, I've received many myself <laughs> throughout the years. And uh, it's just kind of heartwarming um, to see that. But another thing she mentioned, which isn't covered quite as much in the film itself, but it is alluded to. Um, and I cannot think of the, the the movement's name. I think it might be like substitute mom or stand in. Uh, but either way, it is um, something that Sarah does where she will, you know, if if um, a gay couple is getting married, um, one, if not both sets of parents um, may not be there, you know, for, you know, whatever reason. Um, and Sarah and members of the standard movement will will opt to substitute and be there in place, um, you know, of of the couple's parents. Um, which again is, is, is very necessary. What, what ultimately what, what Sarah, um, is spreading is support. 
Um, and I think it's very important that she does that without ever really revoking her faith. Um, I think that's, that's, that's pretty moving that she's actually found a path to reconciliation, um, which it's easy to look at these as bilateral as either, you know, you either are an ally to, um, to the LGBTQ plus community, or, you know, you're, you're sticking to your faith, but it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, ch- a choice. You you can have both, um, and th- and that's at the heart of uh, both this film, but also Sarah's messaging um, at the end of the film. Yep. Yeah, it was it was great stuff. Um, well, that uh, that was Mama Bears. Uh, again, it was the opening night film and the winner of the Best Pride Feature Film. And uh, have a great well, I have an interview uh, with the film's director. I, I say great. She was great. I was moved during the interview. So I don't. So with that said, uh, Daniel, you also covered Eternal Spring and called. Uh, you, you said it was uh, in a category of its own but it still feels at place among many of the most important documentaries. So could you tell me a little bit more about what was the subject and how would it se- How do you think it separated itself from other documentaries you saw this year? Yes. And this was the, um, uh, it should be worth noting. This was the winner. Whereas mama bears was the winner of the uh, best pride feature. This one, uh, the best documentary feature. Um, it is about the religious suppression of, uh, the movement Falun Gong, which is, um, it's practiced in many countries, but originated in China. It's it's takes many of the practices of Buddhism, but I don't think it it actually claims that it's like a subsection of Buddhism. It just shares a lot of similarities. Um, but more importantly, the the hijacking uh, that occurred in 2002 of state-run television, um, specifically state-run uh, television propaganda um, that is very anti-religious practice. Um, and, and how a small group of Falun Gong practitioners both successfully carried out um, their their uh, underground broadcast, or excuse me, broadcast, but also many of them were captured and very few survived. Some are even imprisoned to this day, and it happened in 2002. Um, it, it, on the flip um, side, it also follows the, and it's, it's both mostly animated with the art, and spoken through uh, Dexon, who is a Canadian uh, Chinese um, comic book illustrator, who was also, you know, I, I don't know if he actively practices, but he he was a follower of Falun Gong until that hijacking. He was living in, um, I, I believe it's Changchun City, and shortly after that broadcast occurred, the police went on a very vicious manhunt for everyone who was involved. And and one of the things that said very early in the film is that the police will kill. 1000 people in order to find one person that was allegedly responsible for something. Um, and so out of that fear, Dexong moves, he migrates to North America. Um, he goes to New York first, but he, he, he now lives in Canada and he had this resentment for members of, you know, the religion he practiced because he felt the hijacking just intensified the persecution. And he really, he isn't wrong. Um, but where he, admits that he was incorrect was that he didn't empathize with them. He felt like it was done for no reason. It was careless. And he travels to Seoul to meet one of the participants in the hijacking by the name of Mr. White, who managed to survive and still practices uh, Falun Gong today. And in over the course of that conversation and conversation with other survivors, he learns to, you know, truly empathize and sort of like finds himself uh, once again. Um, 
it's where it's different and what separates it from other documentaries is it's it's almost entirely animated. Um, so it's very similar to um, the one I think of as like, it, it's almost like a combination of Waltz with Bashir, which I believe is a documentary from 2006 about, and it is entirely animated, about um, conflict in Lebanon. And then Josh and, uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's The Look of Silence, which is about um, the Cambodian genocide and involves a survivor of this genocide speaking with those who carried it out. And while we don't hear from uh, the Chinese government, uh, on, on their stance on on this whole thing. Um, we do hear from stories from the survivors. And the thing is, there isn't really a lot of, because of the nature of, of China, there isn't a lot of footage of torture, of the brutality that took place. Um, so instead, um, Dexong recreates it. And that's what literally animates a lot of the film. And it's just a striking visual style. If you've ever read um, a lot of recent like Justice League comics and then some Star Wars comics as well, Dexong has been, um, that's where he's uh, garnered a lot of his fame um, and critical acclaim for his work. But it's just a very beautiful um, piece. And honestly, it actually does small things that just make the documentary better to follow because there's about eight interviews happening simultaneously. Um, and it, it almost feels like a video game in a lot of ways in which it, not to say it, and, and I don't mean that to downplay it, but they like use his illustrations um, as a way to, you know, signify who's speaking. Um, so you can very easily follow along and it really builds up the character. Even um, two of the main characters, um, a grain worker named Big Truck, who's this massive, almost literal mountain of a man um, who, who was very, very, very um, pivotal to the movement. And to this this hijacking, he and um, an engineer, I believe Lang, um, were both, you know, they they died by 2006 and imprisonment from just being years of torture after after this all transpired. But you still get them, you still get their spirit, you still hear their story, and it's just it's 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 very moving. Um, I don't know if this film how prolific it's going to be, but but I really hope it finds its way onto a, a bigger stage. Yeah. Well, I mean, with sort of the, the critical acclaim that, that I uh, think, you know, it, it's gotten at least dead center. Um, hopefully we'll have a chance to see it. Cause uh, I haven't seen that uh, film, but it, uh, you definitely sold me on it. Uh, well, Daniel, just really quickly here uh, before we move on, were there any other films you want to give a quick shout out to? Yeah, just, just two. Um, and real briefly, um, I want to mention octopus. Um, another documentary I caught that, is a very contemplative look at the days that immediately follow the uh, Beirut explosion uh, that occurred in August, 2020. I think we here in the West, it was kind of only on our minds, maybe for a couple days at most um, when it was covered by, you know, news outlets. And then, it, it, you know, we didn't hear from it anymore, but, but this film, there's no interviews, there's no voiceover, there's no narration, there's no animation, there's nothing. It's just almost these static looks at, uh, I don't want to say static, but I should say maybe these kind of these like unblinking looks, just the camera just sits there and it observes life in Beirut in the days immediately following the explosion. And it's very beautiful, very contemplative. Um, I would compare it to something like um, uh, the uh, documentary from 2011, Sam Sarah, or maybe even a, a documentary from 2012 about the North American fishing industry, Leviathan. Um, kind of finds its company there. And then I, I won't go too much on this film, even though I really want to, but the one, uh, the narrative feature I caught, uh, which was the Braves, which won the best narrative feature. Um, it's a French film. 
um, with two powerful performances. Um, my essay is up on it now. Um, I won't reiterate it here. Um, but, but again, another very, 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 very powerful film. Awesome. Um, well, Daniel, thanks so much for giving us the rundown of the documentaries and the other films you saw. Uh, again, I wish I could catch more documentaries. I did see mama bears and just want to iterate what you said. It was a very, I think, I think I at least cried three different times. Um, so it, that's a must see and one to keep up with as well. Joe, let's bring you in here because you were really our Swiss army knife of the team this year because you didn't just cover like one, you know, genre you really did a variety. I mean, you did short films like mantis club. Uh, you did a comedy wake up Leonard, you did the Mexican drama, Oliver in the pool, um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about the movies you saw. So let's maybe start with Mantis Club. The premise for this sounded really intriguing. Uh, what about it stood out to you? Yeah, these are not nearly as uh, probably serious as Daniel's movies. <laughs> so it's hard to follow such powerful, uh, powerful projects. But Mantis Club was very fun. It was a short by Yali and Lee. And I believe it was her graduate thesis from this year. So recently done and also just from school. So that's just amazing. It was amazing work. Um, But the basic premise of it was uh, what if in a different world, a different reality, uh, women were predatory in the same way that, well, not the same way, but a similar way that some men are in our current reality. But in this reality, it's basically if you have sex with a woman, there's an 85% chance that she will kill and eat you basically just like praying mantises do. So um, that is the setup. The character you follow is a a young virgin, Zach, uh, who is talking with this older woman online and trying to decide if he's going to go out to dinner with her and if he's willing to risk it. Um, And it's just a very smart short film, um, not too didactic, um, doesn't get very on the nose just because it's all comedic. It's just, you hear the same things that you might hear women say to each other or, or femme people say to each other, uh, just like, oh, maybe she's one of the good ones or she's just looking for fresh meat. Um, do I want to take the risk just for love? Um, and then you hear women in this world saying like, oh, I just want to kiss and then just pushing and pushing further and eventually leading to, you know, horror. So it's just a really fun little horror film. Um, and the direction was really strong, as I said, and it looked great. So I think if this filmmaker is doing this this early in her career, I think she could easily move on to do some really, really fun horror projects. And I'm really excited to see what she does next. Awesome. I, I'm all for comedies that are uh, deconstructing the patriarchy. Tear it down, I say. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see more. Yeah, yeah, that's it, it. That's exactly it. But like I said, it, it just it wasn't condescending in any way. It was just more fun. And oh, yep, that's that's the reality that we're we're living in. So let's just all laugh at it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good though because I, I think that's the, the sort of the risk you lay in, in those types of uh, stories is getting a little too on the nose. So again, um, super excited to hear that it it played out uh, in, in in comedic fashion. Uh, let's move on to something maybe a little more serious here. I mean, you, you had Oliver and the Pool, uh, which is the Mexican uh, film here. What can you tell us about this film? Yeah, that one was also a little bit comedic, a little bit fanciful because it's told from the perspective of a child named Oliver. Basic premise of this one is um, Oliver's parents who basically just go by mother and father for most of the film, are splitting up. She has fallen in love with somebody at her therapist's therapy office, and 
over dinner. They tell Oliver that they are splitting up. Literally seconds later, his father keels over and dies. And so the rest of the film is Oliver coping with that loss, figuring out uh, how to move forward because he learns that his father died from an aneurysm. He learns what an aneurysm is, that it's something that is hidden in a body and can strike any time. So his basic reaction is to say to himself, well, what's the point of even trying? Because I could just die at any point like my father did. So what he does is he sets up next to the pool at his house and stays there. He says, I don't move from right here. Um, Friends try to come over and get him to go play. Uh, His uncle comes over and tries to get him to be consoled and move on. The mother is more frustrated most of the film. She, as a therapist, is very no-nonsense and just wants him to to, um, get over it, basically, uh, go to school um, because she's ready to move on. So it's basically all these characters trying to cope with this loss in different ways. Um, And a little, a few little misadventures happening throughout the course of the film as they all are, are dealing with that grief. Um, I did, as I said, in my review, it's up, I believe already really like it. Um, And as I also said just now, it is a little bit fanciful. He has these dream sequences where he sees his father appear to him. Um, He dreams that he kills his uh, mother's new lover, um, which is apparently a shared fantasy somehow. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but in this universe, the lover and the, and Oliver have the same dream. Um, So there are little sort of fantasy moments sprinkled in there too, with animation. Um, The house gets infested with cockroaches, which are also animated. So that's kind of fun too. Well, Funny to see, not fun for the characters, but yeah, it's a cute little film. Um, it sort of, I think my one critique of the film is that those fantasy elements do seem a little bit unfocused and it does sort of peter out because the characters are really not going anywhere. They're at this house, Oliver's by the pool. Um, you sort of have to find new ways to inject drama and get them doing things even though he refuses to move from a chair um so it it kind of goes off the rails in a couple of places that feel disconnected uh but overall a very cute film and a, a very interesting exploration of loss and grief and how a child might view the situation and deal with it in a very unique way yeah. So, uh, it sounds like there's a, there's a lot of, a lot to love there, even if, uh, you know, maybe, uh, the, what, what's the saying, uh, the sum is not as great as its parts sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, hey, that's Oliver in the pool. Uh, you, you know, you, you really piqued my interest when you selected the film and I was reading your review. I was like, Hey, I'm at least curious. So, uh, I'm gonna keep my eyes open for that one to see, you know, where it goes, uh, post festival. Uh, and last, but certainly not least you reviewed wake up Leonard and you said, uh, in your review, because Leonard is so aimless, unfortunately the story can be at times. So could you tell me a little more about your thoughts here? What did you think of the, the indie comedy and what worked and what didn't? Yeah. And I actually did really like this film. I think as I have lived in LA previously, a lot of it felt very familiar to me. It's, it's this character in Los Angeles, or suburbs of Los Angeles who is moving apartments, which is already a nightmare regardless of where you are and gets contacted by an ex um, 
the ex wants to tell him something, he realizes that maybe it's a chance to reconnect with this ex. Um, so he spends the entire day just very stressed out. He visits his Hegeler for an extended meditation, which turns into another dream sequence on a beach. Um, I am actually talking to the director of this film, so hopefully I will have some more insight um, later this week. But uh, apparently it was a lot of improv- improvisation on this film, so they I don't know how much of a script or an outline they had. Um, and that's kind of the sense that you get at points, just that he's kind of wandering around. They shot, again, I'm I'm assuming this, but I I assume they shot this with no permits. It's a lot of in cars, in alleys, in apartments. And that's just what you have to do in LA because permits are crazy expensive. Um, And I I, I really respect that because I have done that. I've had friends that do that in LA. So I I respect them working with what they had. But um, there are scenes that I think they... They they barely scratch 70 minutes, I think, in this film, and you can kind of feel them reaching for that at points. They're, they just let scenes kind of go on. It's, um, uh, it's a problem that you see in a lot of, like, recent comedies where there's improv and they just nobody knows when to stop their actors. So um, I think that's probably the flaw there is just that they are trying to reach a certain, like, film length, air quotes, uh, and they just sort of let the characters go on in bits that don't always land. They are, they're strong as they start, but they don't know when to cut. Um, so those scenes just kind of fill space. You can maybe see the director maybe trying to stretch, stretch the scenes a little bit. But all that being said, I did really like this movie. It's, it's a gay lead character. Um, it's an LGBTQ positive film. Um, it also, in a way that's similar to Mantis Club, isn't ever condescending about those sort of like crunchy granola, new agey things that are so prominent in Los Angeles. It is very earnest in the way this character is choosing to deal with his problems, which is, again, going to a meditation or saying affirmations every time he gets into his vehicle Um just trying in whatever way he can to keep his head above water and deal with the emotional stress that he's going through on this particular day, which also happens to be right before Christmas. So that is also a very unique um, feeling in LA, the holidays. Uh, It's not, LA is already so like detached from a lot of reality. I feel like that when it gets to the holiday times, it's, it's hot not everybody decorates. Um, so it's already kind of a weird like middle space to exist in. So that was also interesting. I thought a good choice for this film, just a lot of like being in the middle of, of things that are familiar and unfamiliar. So I, I, again, I really like the film. I'm just being nitpicky, I think. Yeah. Well, a bit of fair, bit of criticism there. I mean, so would you say this is a, a movie I need to, I, I need to add to my list of Christmas movies to watch this year. That's that's what I just heard. Yeah, go for it. I think it's a really cute Christmas film. It's an L.A. Christmas film. So it's like, again, you'll see characters putting trees up, but it's not like very holiday cheer movie. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, Joe, uh, thanks for uh, giving us a rundown of what you saw. Was there any other films or any uh, other comments you wanted to make about things you saw? No, I think just overall, if you can get a hand on any of these films, do see them because I think the Dead Center is in particular, a really good festival to showcase films that might not 
be seen for a very long time. Not to say that none of these films will get distribution. It's just a very good platform to showcase up and coming talent. Um, and if you hear, especially about a short that you really, really like, try to find it immediately because those vanish in, in like seconds and um, you might never see them again. So just shout out to Dead Center for being a good platform. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I, I didn't know, I, you know what? I just realized, I don't think I noted this in any of our coverage this year. Uh, this is our first, Dead Center's first year being an Oscar qualifying film festival. Um, so again, I think it just speaks to they're providing a platform for a lot of these filmmakers who might not have a platform otherwise, and they could also technically qualify for Oscar short films in particular. So uh, again, Joe, I'm really glad that you, you called that out. It is a great place to find some tremendous talent up and coming. And it's always always fun when you discover like a really talented filmmaker in the shorts block. And then five, six, seven years later, you see they did make a, a feature film um, that turns out to be really good, too. So, uh, yeah. Great uh, call out there. All right, Chris. So uh, last thing I want to call out here. So unfortunately, since uh, me, uh, you and Joe were unable to go to the festival and Daniel really had his uh, hands full with all the documentaries, uh, we, we did not get to go to any of the Undead Center films in person, which is a huge bummer because uh, I think Mickey Reese worked really hard to, to put together some tremendous programming for uh, that film. That said, you did get a chance to screen one of the films from your home, Piggy. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that film and, and maybe what separates that from traditional Dead Center programming? Yeah, so just a little bit more about the film. It is actually a, a feature-length uh, film adapted from a short film that came out, I think, in 2018. Um, but uh, so this is this is the extended version, uh, the extended cut, if you will. And it's uh, it was made in Brazil, I believe. Um, I would need to double check that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's um, the basic plot is there is a, a, a young girl, a uh, teenage girl who is bullied by uh, some of her peers. Uh, they call her Piggy um, because she is overweight. And um, she, uh, she ends up witnessing them being uh, kidnapped and um, basically dragged away by a, uh, a serial killer. Um, and she doesn't really do anything to stop him from taking them. Um, and so it kind of, it kind of goes from there in terms of, uh, in terms of what it, uh, the, the repercussions of her of her inactivity uh, as the sort of investigation as to where these girls have gone ensues within the town. Yes, Caleb, thank you. Uh, it, Spain. I was thinking of a different film that was uh, in Brazil. So uh, thank you for that clarification. Um, but yeah, it was a it's a pretty solid horror film. Um, it uh, it really kind of plays into you know how uh, how people can become kind of morally dubious when they're they're faced with bullying um, and uh, what, what they may or may not do to, you know, to, uh, to see those bullies get their comeuppance. Um, so lots of sh shades of carry, I would say kind of leads to um, some pretty bloody places. And that's all I'll say of where it goes. I'm glad you mentioned the carry comparison there. Mickey said the same thing when I talked to him on the podcast about undead center. Um, so it sounds like if you're a carry or a horror fan, this is one to check out. Is that, would you recommend? Yeah, for sure. And it, you know, it's definitely, it's got a lot to say about like fat phobia. Um, that's, that's been happening a lot. Um, you know, the, the nature of bullying, um, there's, there's a lot going on sort of under the hood uh, of this film. Uh, it's, it's beautifully shot as, as well. Um, 
the uh the, the it has kind of a sort of a brighter uh pastel almost color palette to it so that really kind of contrasts well with the the horrible and dark things that are happening in the narrative um but yeah i i would i would have to say check it out I, I mentioned to daniel how i wasn't sure if i liked the ending but i thought about it a little longer and i do so <laughs> that's always good to hear well and here's the other thing that and, and me and mickey talked about this after uh in, in the, the interview that people can listen to if they want to hear just mickey talking uh, so um I think the thing that really intrigued me most about this entire block, and I was super bummed that I didn't get to make it out to any of these sort of midnight movie style screenings. Uh, they, they, uh, I, I would say provocative in some ways as in, and what I mean is you're probably going to walk away thinking about the movie for one reason or another after it's done. So I'm very happy to hear that piggy uh, did that as well. Um, so fingers crossed uh, that this was a success for dead center this year. I really love the addition of midnight movies heartbroken that I couldn't make it out. It was literally one of the things I was most excited about this year. Um, but hope to see more of that from Mickey Reese, uh, next year. Uh, Chris, uh, thanks for weighing in there. Uh, a couple other films I want to quickly shout out before we wrap up, uh, that we haven't talked about, uh, getting it back, uh, the Samande story. So I had the privilege of interviewing two of the members of Samande, but by the way, have any of the three of you ever heard of Samande? Can't say I have. I don't think so. Nope. Nope. I don't think so. Okay. Neither did I. Uh, so here's the whole premise of the documentary. This is a band, a uh, British um, sort of funk band from the 70s that... Uh, oh, oh. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this is perfect because the premise of the film is like this band was super influential in the seventies, really influenced a ton of the early sort of like hip hop movement before it was the hip hop movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sort of influenced the influencers before people knew that's what they were, so to speak. And so I, they, I so didn't they, realize that's how their name was pronounced, which is why I was like, huh, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, again, I had never heard of this band before, and I had yeah. to go and out and research and, and watch the documentary uh, to understand that I was saying it's not Simonade, uh, which is right. how it looks. It's some Monday um, because yeah. they have uh, they have uh, roots um, in the Caribbean. So uh, there's some heritage there. But uh, anyway, I just want to call this out because uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm 50-50 on music documentaries. I feel like a lot of times they get a little self-aggrandizing or formulaic uh, sort of in a, in a certain way. Like think of like a, an inspirational sports film, but for music in and in a documentary. This film, though, I, I really I think what makes it so compelling is the history. One, probably most people of my generation being millennials or Gen Z probably haven't heard of Samande. The history in which they came up, uh, so it was, again, very racially charged era around the world, but especially in the UK in the 70s. And you kind of just learn about where that sound came from. And and you can hear through sort of the way they incorporate the, the, the edit, the documentary, how the sound has evolved into to bands that everyone knows about uh, at this point in time. So uh, again, just really compelling. And I would say it's, it's, it's uh, thanks in large part to two things. One, they just have an incredible history. There's, there's a lot of UK history I didn't know about. And they talk about the gentrification of the, the British neighborhoods, the, the London neighborhoods, I should say, and how, you know, their sound was sort of influenced by, by those movements, but also uh, really tremendous filmmaking, from the director, Tim McKenzie Smith. And uh, you can check out the interview we have on the cinematic schematic. I sat down with two, the guitarist and the bassist and then uh, Tim McKenzie Smith himself talking a little bit about how they work together on the film. And another thing was uh, because there was basically no footage of them back in their heyday. 
hardly any. So they had to go to to like impossible lengths to find footage to use in the documentary. And it really kind of underscores like, wow, it's really cool that they were able to do that. So just, you know, tell the story via documentary. So I want to call that out again. Great conversation we have up on the, the website. You can you can check that out. I will add real fast. If you've seen the Spike Lee movie 25th Hour, you've heard uh, Samande because they, that that's how I got turned on to them back in the day was nice. uh, the film 25th Hour. So, um, yeah, Very if you've cool. seen that movie, you've probably unwittingly heard Samande. I, you know, it's it's no surprise to me that Spike Lee would use some Samande and uh, soundtracks uh, spot on. Um, the other one I want to call out here is going to be the closing night film uh, Butterfly in the Sky, which is just a documentary about the making of Reading Rainbow starring LeVar Burton. So, um, again, I, I also did an interview on the, the podcast you can check out there. But uh, I will just say personally, grew up, loved Reading Rainbow. Um, it really ignited my imagination to what was possible through the books. Uh, it was read inspired me to start writing fiction as a very small child. I no longer write fiction, but what it did do was sort of inspire me to go pursue a literature degree, which inevitably leads me to content creation and marketing, which is what I do now. So um, I can't say uh, enough nice things about the show Reading Rainbow and sort of how it was uh, influential to myself, uh, as well as I would say uh, an entire generation of, of readers, uh, most specifically millennials and, and maybe um, the younger Gen Xers. Uh, but uh, tremendous documentary kind of diving into, you know, what, what, you know, what inspired the program? Why is it powerful? Why does it resonate? Why do we still need that sort of programming and love for reading now today more than ever? Um, and they had a really in-depth interview uh, with LeVar Burton that's featured uh, prominently in the documentary. So I highly encourage you to check that out if you're a fan of The Reading Rainbow. And maybe even if you're not, but you love reading books, uh, it's worth your time because uh, maybe you'll discover something new. Um, so I want to call that out there. Last thing. Just to reference a, an interview I did on the podcast, The Battle of Honey Springs. Uh, yes, it was a documentary uh, made about the Battle of Honey Springs here in Oklahoma. Uh, so I just want to call that. I had a really fun interview uh, with the director, Brian Beasley. Essentially, they, ha- they had um, been brought in to make a documentary to play in the museum, the Honey Springs Museum, which, uh, again, I... Not from Oklahoma natively. I've been here for a long time, but I don't, I'm not as familiar with the history because I didn't go to primary education here. He was talking about how this, this battle of Honey Springs apparently was like a very formative battle in Oklahoma before we were, when we were still a territory and turned the tide of the civil war uh, in this part of the country. So anyway, learned a lot. Fun interview. Brian Beasley's a, a fun, really nice guy. Really enjoyed my talk with him. You can check that out. Uh, back over at thecentermetropolis.com as well. Actually, last, last, last thing here, the Seeds of Greenwood. That's the, uh, so every year the Oklahoma City Thunder team uh, usually has a new short film to premiere. This year it was the Seeds of Greenwood. I, I, I have to say, I was really excited about this one coming off of last year's Pause the Game, where they actually talked about the, the you know, at this point sort of like shot heard around the world when the Thunder game uh, back in March of 2020 got canceled while people were in the arena. It was really, uh, that was one I was, I was surprised by how much um, insight was garnered into the whole process of how did they decide to do it? Why they decided to do it? What were the repercussions? And um, it really, in a lot of ways, was the moment that sort of signaled the beginning of the pandemic for people around the the Americas. So that was last year, 2021's documentary. So going into this year, I was really excited about the scenes of Greenwood. And what they're d- doing here is highlighting the Thunder Fellows program, which is a program put together, of course, by the Thunder, um, designed to enrich the um, education of uh, African-American black children in uh, the Greenwood district. 
uh, and this is enriching them in things like technology, entertainment, sports, athletics, STEM. Um, it's it's sort of a so sort of documenting you know what the program's about. You know, uh, definitely I think uh, it, it's got a really strong thunder angle on it. But uh, I think that the program itself is really exciting, and it was great to just kind of hear from the the the, the filmmaking team behind it. Um, you know what went into the program and, and sort of what they're hoping to achieve with that. So that is the last one I will call out today. Before we start to wrap up, I wanted to give one final call here. Are there any other films or things you guys want to call out today uh, before we wrap up the show? I just have one, um, if you don't mind, kind of piggybacking off of Octopus, uh, the film about the uh, Beirut explosion. Uh, there was a short film. I, I made it to the tearjerker shorts, but I believe this one was in the Pride shorts um, as well. And maybe I think there's another block called Big Hearted shorts, which um, I don't know entirely what distinguishes that one from tearjerkers. But I believe this film made it out there and it is Warshaw. It's directed by um, uh, Dania Badir and it stars um, Kansa, who is a, uh, um, a male... Um, pop singer but also a belly dancer um and it's about a young man named muhammad his um and i believe they're actually rebuilding beirut as a result of the explosion and he opts to or he volunteers to operate one of the tallest cranes um in beirut um you know not necessarily because he's uh, braver than than anyone else or stupid it's just so he can have a moment to himself so he can in turn be who he really is uh which is a uh a phenomenal singer and dancer and you get to see that captured and it's only like like 14 15 minutes long um but it has some just very 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 great cinematography um i believe shadi uh chaban i do hope i'm not butchering uh, their name, but but that was the cinematographer. Um, I actually spoke briefly with um, the Pride programmer, Laurent Chapman, friend of uh, the Cinematropolis, about the making of that film. And uh, despite it being a short film, there are a lot of shots that, um, you know, are like, <laughs> you know, like 50 stories up in the air and look terrifying. And they were, and, and some of them were actually shot there on like rickety uh, walkways. Uh, but again, a, a very moving film, not much dialogue at all, but, but when you should, uh, try and catch if you can see it anywhere. Um, but yeah, again, that was Warshaw. Just real fast. I wanted to say, um, Raquel one, one, um, it's amazing. And again, the less you know about it, the better just dive right in, but Raquel one, one. The premise for that, I, I okay, I, so we're going to go into not spoiling it per Chris's uh, recommendation here, but I did read the synopsis on the Dead Center website and it definitely uh, piqued my interest for sure. Yeah, it was it was quite good. I think I think it's probably the favorite, my favorite of everything I've seen uh, this year. Awesome. High praise. Well, we'll have to uh, make a note of that in the show notes as well. So listeners check that out. Um, all right, everyone. Well, we are nearing the end of the show. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to note here. It's kind of this is this last question is probably gonna be kind of tough since three of us didn't actually make it to, you know, the festival proper. But, um, well, you know, is there anything you guys would like to say about your favorite part about the, the festival uh, experience or, you know, what the festival means sort of to our to our community here before we wrap up? Daniel, I'll start with you since you were the first you were the one to go on site. 
Yeah, so I already went a, a little bit about the in-person experience, but I, I um, so just to be on more of a, a personal level, I don't mean to be that guy, but there are some years where um, it's easier to appreciate some films more than others. And um, and that's just the nature of it. Um, you have a lot of filmmakers, Chris was alluding to this earlier, that are there for the very first time. It's often a learning opportunity um, for both audiences, but but new filmmakers themselves to, to see how their films are um, received. But really this year, maybe just by sheer luck of the draw, um, it's very hard to think of something that, that you know, didn't truly resonate with me. I'll, I'll probably say that The Braves may have been my um, favorite film overall, but it is a very, it is very, very difficult to say that um, because it's a pretty contentious lineup that I got to enjoy, including the short films, including the tearjerker shorts. There's a, a lot of great um, options there, and I'm sure there are many more I didn't see. I know I didn't. Uh, um, Raquel One One um, Mantis Club also sounds awesome, <laughs> just from uh, Joe's review alone. So I'd uh, love to check that out. Um, but again, I think that's just a testament to how much better this festival is getting in terms of programming continues to not that it wasn't great already, but it keeps getting better. Um, so yeah, can't, can't praise it enough, especially this year. Yeah. The sheer volume of quality, I I think is really my biggest takeaway, uh, having not have been there in person. Um, and again, not saying anything about previous years, but, um, it, it, yeah, it just, everything felt so, good just like it was a really good year um and 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 again the variety too i really loved the different kinds of voices the different kinds of films uh that i saw across the board awesome joe yeah um i'll say that i've just i think become accustomed to the virtual film festival experience i've done sundance a couple of times virtually south by virtually a couple times now. Um, and I'm really glad that uh, Dead Center, at least at the time of this recording, we're going to have a abbreviated uh, offering in 14 hours uh, with a virtual festival. So I'm hoping that that is something that continues to grow because just based on this conversation, I see a couple of things here on the virtual festival page that I'm going to look at. Mama Bears is up there. Um, a lot of the shorts blocks are there. So um, I'm hoping that that continues to grow. I know that's like a major infrastructure ask, um, but if we could see like filmmakers being interviewed on there and maybe some live streams, I think that would be so incredible. So I hope I hope that is something that continues to grow. I'm very excited about that. Awesome. Dead Center, are you listening? You want more filmmaker interviews for, for bonus content uh, on the virtual portal? I think they did a lot of that in 2020. Uh, you got my number. Uh, you got our numbers for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, give us a call. Um, Joe, thank you so much for calling that out because even though it was a fully in-person festival, they have kept up a small um, number of the films on the virtual festival portal, uh, including some Oklahoma features, some short films, and some feature films. I, I know even the Seeds of Greenwood, for example, they're actually going to debut that upon uh, the portal on Juneteenth. So uh, again, it's going to be open for, I think, another week or so. And I think the last thing I would say about that is it's really hard to see a ton of movies in person. So, so, so I would step back here, Joe uh, and, and Joe, you can chime in here as well. Cause you've covered several film festivals, both in person and, and physically. Uh, and as of all of us who have been doing this for dead center, it's when you're in person, it's hard to catch 10 films 
uh, over the course of three to four days, right? Really hard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, impossible. You're exhausted. <laughs> but whenever you can do it from home over 10 days, all of a sudden you're like, wow, I can act. You, you, you feel like you can adequately get a sampling of everything you want to see versus, um, you know, things are really competitive for your time when you're there in person and where you can walk in. And especially uh, one of the cool things about dead center is that they use a ton of venues all over the city, but sort of the downside is it takes time to get there. So sometimes you have to like sort of make um, decisions about where you put your time. And I just want to shout out what you called out there, because I do think the virtual festival um, is a huge ad that was you know, built during the the pandemic out of necessity that I think could still be continuing to be a value add for all of us who want to go and be there with the filmmakers and want to have that in-person experience, but also just can't physically be everywhere all at one time. Um, And I will say too- in the heat also. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for real. (laughs) Uh, I was only like outside for 40 minutes and it just like, I, I went into one film and then came out and it was like, oh, 95 degrees. This is sweltering. But not um, as well. I, I, I got to tell you, there was one time. There's an ice cream shop. I think is it Marble Slab? One of those ice cream st- shops right around the corner from the Harkins. And one year, I think it was one of my first Dead Centers, probably like 2014, 2015. I made the super duper boneheaded mistake of eating a giant ice cream cone, eating it in the cool ice cream shop, and then waiting in line for an hour. I was sick. <laughs> so it, it's uh, it is pretty intense, and that was also very poor decision-making on my part. So yes, the heat is a factor. Well, and you know, you have people who, cause you know, one, one day we won't be under pandemic um, restrictions. Uh, you know, it seems, it always seems like it's still really far away. And you know, I know we're all very fatigued by it, but uh, it, we will get there one day, but um, you know, people with certain disabilities, um, other considerations that go to, you know, there's having a virtual component opens up so many doors for so many people. And it does allow you to actually see so much more. Um, you know, it, it's great to go and see a film in person for sure. Um, and, and, you know, if you, you have the ability to do that, absolutely do it. Um, but, you know, being able to couple that with the virtual component and be like, oh, you know, I, I heard about this film. I've missed all the screenings for it, but it's available for me to watch online. I'll go ahead and watch it. Um, which is exactly what I'm going to do and what we've all discussed doing. Um, you know, I think that's wonderful. And that definitely expands the audience that these films are going to get, which I think is, is the key. You know, that's the really the main point of having a film festival is to get these films in front of eyes. And um, yeah, I would love, I would love for the virtual aspect or the uh, online aspect to remain intact long into the future. Daniel, were you going to say something? Oh, no, just a second. Both um, Joe and Chris's comments and Joe mentioning that it is it is a big infrastructure ask. And when when I say, uh, you know what I'm saying about like, well, the infrastructure is already there. It still might be difficult to make these things virtual, but we've kind of been forced to do that anyway. And so now, even as we, you know, eventually do emerge from the pandemic and can safely um, do this kind of uh, in-person stuff a bit more frequently, it's still you know, we, we don't need to lose that accessibility. Um, I know I'm kind of going against what I said earlier about how it does make the films in some way like a, a weird, maybe it's almost a placebo effect that they feel more important when you see them in a theater. Um, but but seeing them is what matters um, and and for them to be seen, in fact. Um, so yeah, I, I hope we do not lose the the virtual film festival. I would hope that even, you know, more major film festivals would pick it up um, or do the same. 
Um, you know, I know cons is so, um, you know, you can't possibly have a virtual film festival there, but like they really could. Um, and maybe they do to some capacity. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, again, just reiterate that, that really accessibility is key here and, and virtual festivals absolutely do that. And if you like some of the films we saw, especially again, like mama bears. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. All right. I think we are about out of time here, guys. I, I just want to thank each and every one of you for taking time uh, out of your recording this on the Sunday, the last day of the festival will be posting on Friday. So a few days uh, later, um, I believe the virtual portal is still up for another couple of days. Um, so if you have a badge, you can still access those there. Um, but uh, first, I just want to say thank you all uh, again for you know, giving up a weekend uh, to write a lot of movies. You guys, everyone here pitched in hardcore within just a few days, turning around like four or five uh, review essays, watching tons of movies. So I'm I'm really um, just happy that you guys came back. And it's always a a huge pleasure to work with each and every one of you guys at the festival um, every year. Um, So, um, Joe, I'll start with you. Uh, Firstly, uh, thanks so much for joining this year. And where can people follow you and your work online? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter at Joe underscore lightly, and you can read all my stuff on nofilmsgold.com. Awesome. Uh, Christopher, thank you for returning to us again this year. Uh, where can people keep up with you and your work? Um, I'm, I'm not very active on social media much these days, uh, but I have kind of been using Instagram quite a bit. Um, so my handle there is uh, kind of wonky, but, uh, if you search just my name, Christopher Schultz, um, you should find me, but the, the username is Agastus, like Augustus, but you're a ghast and, uh, it's funny. Awesome. Very nice. Uh, and Daniel Bokemper, thank you for joining us again, uh, this year at dead center. Where can people keep up with you and your work online? Yeah. Check out, um, Again, similar to Chris, not super active on social media, but you can find me on Twitter at, at Daniel Bokemper, also on Facebook, just search, uh, Daniel Bo Camper, or even just Bo Camper, and you'll, you'll probably find me. Um, but also um, check out my uh, book reviews at worldliteraturetoday.org every once in a while, as well as my film reviews a little bit more frequently at The Cinematropolis. Awesome. And uh, of course, uh, listeners, you can find me and all my work uh, over at thecinematropolis.com um, on Twitter, tweeting about things, uh, films, video games, television uh, at C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk. And you can keep up with all the work we do at the Cinematropolis on social media on Twitter at the Cinematrop or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Cinematropolis. Uh, and if you've enjoyed our conversation today and you say, hey, um, I didn't get to catch that movie or Ooh, I want more in-depth uh, thoughts on all the movies you talked about today, you can find all of our extensive dead center coverage over at the cinematropolis.com we have nearly a dozen podcast interviews along with even more written pieces uh, from joe daniel and chris thanks so much for joining us listeners we'll catch you again next time when we return to our normally scheduled programming with a review discussion covering jurassic world dominion